A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Lovely listeners, my podcast sponsors, Foreo, have got a mega invitation for you. If your face is feeling puffy, breaking out, or just feeling a bit dull in this humid weather, then you can get 20% off their groundbreaking UFO face mask that acts like cryotherapy for your face. The technology is so groundbreaking, they called it UFO because it's out of this world, and I can testify. I literally have my face mask on most days to cool down, and it transforms how I look in minutes. Foreo are world leaders in the beauty tech industry and so it is a complete privilege to be partnering with them. They are offering Not Perfect listeners 20% off and it's a significant amount so do check out the link in the show notes to find out more. Sometimes psychiatric medications are life-saving, life-changing. I have seen them be the keys to the kingdom that help somebody walk out of a really dark hole and go on to lead a fulfilling life. And I've also seen times when they're ineffective, times when someone feels really demoralized, they just feel like they've tried everything and nothing's helping, and I've seen side effects, adverse effects, and of course I've seen people struggle with withdrawal. We are in a moment right now where it's our medications themselves that have even made certain brains more fragile and prone to chronic disability. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's podcast, I am interviewing Dr. Ellen Vora, who is a holistic psychiatrist on a mission to break open old ways of treating mental health and instead offer an approach that considers the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root. She spent nine years in medical school and it was only when she took it upon herself to research other methods of addressing mental health struggles that weren't seen to be getting fixed did she finally understand there were more effective ways of thinking about the mind away from reflexively prescribing medication to suppress symptoms. She takes a 360 consideration when looking after patients, focusing on everything from physical health, sleep, nutrition, digestion, thought patterns, relationships and community, to our connection with nature, creativity and purpose. Not only this, but Dr. Ellen is an acupuncturist, a yoga teacher, and received her BA from Yale University and her MD from Columbia University, and she is a board certified in psychiatry and integrative holistic medicine. I feel deeply passionate about Ellen's work because I fully agree, the mind cannot fix the mind often. We can't talk about mental health as this separate thing. Luckily, Dr. Vora's new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, is full to bursting with research and roads forward to understand mental health and anxiety in a new way, a way that truly gets to the heart of the problem and has the power to make a real, significant change. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? A 
quote I've been thinking about so much lately is this one by the inimitable Alan Watts, which is problems that remain persistently insoluble should always be suspected as questions asked in the wrong way. Well, that stopped me in my tracks. Can you share more? Why is that a quote you return to often? It pertains to the way I was taught to address the mental health of my patients. We've all come of age with this monoamine hypothesis of depression. In other words, our depression, our anxiety is a result of a genetic chemical imbalance. So it's very focused on mental health from the neck up and focused on this kind of genetic destiny where we feel stuck and that it's a fixed trait. And it never really sat right for me. And especially as I witnessed how many of my patients were not adequately helped by the treatments that address this so-called chemical imbalance. And so it really forced me to step way back and wonder if we're asking the question in the wrong way. And that has been incredibly fruitful. And what I've learned is that thinking about mental health in an entirely different way, recognizing the role that sleep and our nutrition and inflammation and movement and gut health, not to mention our psycho-spiritual needs, like our need for community and meaning and purpose in our lives and the need to be of service, that these are also determinants of our mental health. And that that chemical imbalance is sometimes a downstream effect. It's not the original source of the problem. It's an effect of all of these other aspects of our life, our physical health, our psycho-spiritual health. And while we can't do much about our genes, there's a lot that we can do about all of these determinants of our mental health. Wow. What an answer. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? I mean, the truth there is that I got back two nights ago at two in the morning from a very delayed flight, a very long travel day. Um, I got back from a weekend at something called the Sun Valley Wellness Festival where I was speaking. And from the minute I headed out there and throughout the experience, there was so many very undeniable indications of guidance. I'm very open to that, very available for guidance. But of course, I question it. I, I doubt. And it was really nice to get such a big dose of feeling guided and being able to surrender and trust to the unfolding events of life. And I find that that really helps me get through challenging times. That's such a beautiful lesson. And would you mind um, if I asked you know, what were these nudges of guidance? Because I think we all are wanting this guidance. And I think sometimes it can get confusing as to know, like, is the sign big enough for it to be guidance? Do you know what I mean? I mean, there are, a lot of them are very personal, but I think that in a way, usually on a podcast, I like to first like give a big performance of like, here's how evidence-based and here's my pedigree yeah. and my medical training and here's how <laughs> objective I can be. Get everyone like convinced and on board with like, okay, this doctor knows what she's talking about. And only at the end am I like, here's the thing, spirituality and intuition. <laughs> you know, right. so I, right. I sort of, you know, I, I know how to get buy-in <laughs> and opening with like um, the woo-woo sometimes isn't the right strategy. But yeah, for me, it was, um, well, my mom passed away about six or seven years ago and her name was Jane. And so when I come across anyone with the name Jane, I take it as a little wink from the universe. And when I got on the plane, I was sitting in a row with someone named Jane, who actually also happened to be going to the same tiny little wellness festival in Idaho as I was. And so, wow. And then 
um, I came across a, a dog who came right up to me on the path, and it turns out that that dog's name was the nickname that my mom used to call me. And then throughout the experience, all of the synchronicities and just all of the feelings of salience, and it just helped me know I am on my path carrying out my contribution. I mean, I'd love to discuss that further, actually. That is, as you said, you know, usually on a podcast, you kind of have to almost affirm the science and create this trust using your hugely credible and reputable medical background before people are even open to kind of even the suggestion of something that can, is the less seen in our world. How has that journey been for you? And I actually, you know, when I was reading your book, I, I thought you're one of the only people that could write a book like this because of your medical background. What are your thoughts on that? Mm, yeah, I think about that. You know, I, I wasn't connected to my intuition back when I was deciding what to do. But I, I, the minute I got to med school, I was like, I think I want to drop out. <laughs> I feel very out of alignment with what I'm being taught. It does not feel like I would have these recurring nightmares that I was stuck on a train speeding in the wrong direction. And so I felt out of step with it. But looking back, I am glad that I lasted and survived through those four years of med school and one year of research fellowship and four years of psychiatry residency because it does give me this credibility to be able to say, here are some of those ideas that we're ready to throw away. You know, I don't discount all of it. I certainly see the value of conventional medicine when it comes to reacting to a heart attack or a car accident. Thank goodness for our heroic interventions. But most of what we're struggling with is chronic degenerative disease. And that's where conventional medicine in many ways does not help and sometimes makes the problem worse. Our strong suit is not prevention. And for me, there was a long time when I was really shaping my persona and actually silencing my own intuition in order to be accepted in the boys club. And I, mm. I wanted to be perceived as intelligent, but also reasonable and <laughs> objective, rational, not sensitive, not silly, you know, and what I was picking up on are really very patriarchal ideals. And, and what we value is this more masculine tendency towards objective reasoning. And what we devalue as a culture is more intuitive reasoning. And as you put it so well, like what we can't see. And it took for me quite a journey to be able to embrace this side of myself. And now that I do, thank goodness for it, because it's such a useful compass. And if I was only examining and analyzing the world objectively all the time and everything was a equation or a pros and cons list, I would be so unmoored and I'd be making wrong decisions. And so instead I, I use that, I value that, but I balance it with an intuitive connection to what feels right, to how my body communicates yes or no. And it's a really helpful way of navigating the vagaries of our lives. You open the book writing, we are on the cusp of a significant shift in how we view and treat mental health. Such a strong and powerful opening line, I think, sums up the book being this great guidebook to a shift into something that feels so much more effective. Where do you see the resistance being? What is stopping the shift from everyone taking your approach? So... I'll date myself with this, but in the 90s, there was this Dave Matthews brand album called Remember Two Things, which had, you know, you'd buy it as a CD and it had an album cover. And it was this magic eye poster where it was just this very strange pattern that you'd stare at and it looked like nothing. And you'd stare at it and stare at it. 
And then you'd be in the in club because eventually you would see this peace sign, like a hand holding up a peace sign emerge through the magic eye poster. And once you saw it, you could never unsee it. So even Mm -hmm. though for hours you were staring at it, unable to see it, eventually you got it and then it would never go away. And I feel the same way about functional medicine. Functional medicine is basically here to say, hey, the way we should be approaching health is by doing root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression. And once that peace sign popped out of the poster, I could never unsee it or see health in, in back in the original way. I was trained to say, okay, these people have symptoms, so let's give this pill. But these different medicines are so often simply a Band-Aid. They just suppress symptoms. They do nothing to address the root cause of the problem. And that's bananas, but that's how we're approaching health. And so functional medicine, which is so much more hopeful and more empowering and gives a lot more credit to the body, basically recognizes the body generally is well-designed and wants to work. But sometimes we're missing certain inputs that we need. Sometimes we're getting certain inputs that irritate our system. So once we can identify the imbalance and address it at that level, we can walk away feeling well. And then we don't even need the symptom suppressing medications anymore. So I think the resistance is partly that medicine's glory days were actually in the early days when we came up with antibiotics and it made us feel so heroic. It's like, oh, you have a disease, we have the cure, and you walk away alive and a happy camper and we feel so potent as physicians. And I think we keep trying to get back to those glory days with Mm. pathologies that don't lend themselves to that model. Depression and anxiety don't actually lend themselves to that model as much as we try. And so... I think the resistance is partly that we just haven't seen the magic eye poster emerge yet. And part of it is that we have this very well-meaning movement right now to destigmatize mental health and to create more of a disease model understanding of it. To say, you know, depression, anxiety, it's no different than diabetes. And you wouldn't feel shame for taking your medication for diabetes, so you shouldn't feel shame for taking your medication for depression and anxiety. And of course, the spirit of this is something I wholeheartedly agree with. I don't want anyone feeling shame, certainly for mental health or anything else. However, I do actually believe that depression and anxiety are different from diabetes. Not a moral failing that we should be ashamed of different, but different in that the determinants of it can be psycho-spiritual and certainly can be physical. And it's not simply a Lexapro deficiency disorder. So I think part of the resistance is just in, even as we try to empower people, um, I think we're actually sort of defeating ourselves in the process. You know, I constantly go back to the data where it's so clearly things are getting worse. So we've got more therapists than ever, we've got more medication than ever, and yet we've got more depression than ever before in the history of mankind. And also we've got more, we've got more people talking about it. So arguably we've got less stigma. So I, I like feel really passionate about this because I see all of this stuff online and I'm thinking to myself, something is going clearly wrong in all of this. And yet we are consistently moving forward this type of conversation. Why do you think mental health is worse than it has ever been before? I think it is multifaceted. I love when you had Anna Lemke on your show and Um, She really helps us understand that we've drugified everything. And so we've created dopamine imbalances for all of us, just going through our lives, eating the bag of chips that's on offer and cheap and right at eye level and addictively hyperpalatable. And with our screens, like we have created 
a neurotransmitter imbalance through the drugification of our world. I think that social media has played a role, screens in general, and their impact on sleep, um, the modern food environment that inflames us and leaves us malnourished, all of these play a role. I think that there's one very controversial view that I hold here. I've been very influenced by the work of Robert Whitaker and his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, where I share this view that even to a certain extent, our own well-meaning treatments for mental health have contributed to the worsening of the problem sometimes. And that's why this is so complicated and so nuanced. Sometimes psychiatric medications are life-saving, life-changing. I'm a psychiatrist after all. I prescribe them. I put some of my patients on them. I have seen them be the keys to the kingdom that help somebody walk out of a really dark hole and go on to lead a fulfilling life. And I've also seen times when they're ineffective, times when someone feels really demoralized. They just feel like they've tried everything and nothing's helping. And I've seen side effects, adverse effects. And of course, I've seen people struggle with withdrawal. And I think that we are in a moment right now where it's our medications themselves that have even made certain brains more fragile and prone to chronic disability, whereas perhaps their initial state of depression or anxiety could have been better addressed through diet and lifestyle measures or would have been self-limiting and temporary, but we've made it chronic in climbing on board that medication roller coaster with, with withdrawal and with the ways that it can predispose a brain to getting more out of balance. You have helped, I mean, you have over 50,000 people that follow you on Instagram and you have your own practice. So you have helped thousands, if not millions of people around the world look at their mental health differently and treat themselves in a different way too. What are the most common problems you get asked about or do you see? And what are the most impactful interventions do you find are an instant intervention that you suggest to people? What I'm seeing that's especially prevalent, I mean, I see as a broad category so much anxiety. I see a lot of depression. We're not even complaining about it, but insomnia, um, (laughs) ADHD, very common, and a disturbing amount of bipolar that seems to be where it evidently is on increase. And so part of how we know it's not purely genetic or genetic predisposition, this is about environmental influences that are increasing the rates of things like chronic disability from bipolar. And then, you know, in subtleties that I see, I see a lot of parents concerned for their children. There's a lot of parents that are saying, you know, my children are anxious. They are um, really resistant to help. I think people get stuck in a dynamic of almost like identifying with a diagnosis. It's a part of our identity. And we don't really want to be told that there are strategies that could support us feeling better partly because that's overwhelming and partly because it's somewhat invalidating and makes us feel foolish for suffering so much. And so we don't even want to go down that road. And so I see a lot of parents struggling with that. Like, how do I get through to my child and help them when we're kind of stuck in this entrenched victim, savior, perpetrator triangle? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that the interventions that have been most helpful. So in my book, it's like, that's the whole first half of the book is basically like, here's me as Mr. Fix-It with actionable strategies. Do this, do this, do this. I recognize sometimes when you're anxious, that can feel overwhelming <laughs> just to be told, like, do these 50 things. But I really intend for it to be a buffet. 
And so, yeah, there are things that pack the most punch, but overall I want people to kind of hear the breadth of all the different things they can do and check in with themselves and figure out here's what feels approachable. Here's what resonates um, so that they start with something that doesn't overwhelm them, doesn't trigger them, and then incrementally make some improvements in their anxiety and, and then perhaps the next change becomes accessible. But if I had to pull out a couple that seem to be great places to start, blood sugar is a really wonderful low-hanging fruit when it comes to using diet and lifestyle to support anxiety. What I see is that, and what biologically makes sense, is that we're all on a blood sugar roller coaster because the modern diet is refined carbohydrates and coffee drinks that are secretly milkshakes and rosé all day. <laughs> so our blood sugar spikes, and that's chased by insulin, which causes our blood sugar to crash. The design of the body is that we secrete cortisol and adrenaline, our stress hormones, and we have a stress response in reaction to a blood sugar crash. And that's a decent design. It helps cue the liver to break down its starch that it stores. And then we restore our blood sugar to normal levels. Our organs don't fail. We live to see another day. It's a good thing, but it has as a side effect a five alarm fire of a stress response in the body. And that feels synonymous with anxiety or even panic, feeling easily overwhelmed, um, waking up throughout the middle of the night if it's happening overnight. And so, so much unnecessary suffering is caused by our blood sugar swings. And the definitive solution there is eating a blood sugar stabilizing diet, kind of eating the way our great, 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 great grandmothers attempted to eat. And short of that, <laughs> there is a hack that can be supportive if someone's just like completely overwhelmed at the idea of eating a blood sugar stabilizing diet. They're like, well, I'm skipping breakfast and having a pastry and then nachos for dinner. So like, it's just too much to think about eating, you know, a balanced whole foods diet. Um, so then you can take a spoonful of something like almond butter or coconut oil in anticipation of when your body typically has a blood sugar crash. So if you know that you're dashing to the snack room at three in the afternoon and you're like, I must have something sweet, you might want to take a spoonful at like 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon. If you pick a fight with your partner at 5 p.m., then maybe you take one an hour before that. And if you're someone who wakes up throughout the middle of the night, maybe you take a spoonful right before you brush your teeth at night. So that one, when I used to work at this large primary care group, and I would pour my heart and soul into teaching the primary care physicians how to support their patients' mental health, and I would like give them every idea under the sun, the feedback that I would get was about that strategy, the spoonful of almond butter, and the squatty body. So those seem to be the most impactful interventions. <laughs> and so um, it's a really nice thing that you can start doing today and feel a little bit less anxious. So almond butter, not peanut butter. Yeah, um, peanut butter can be okay, but it just has a tendency to be, it's, it's a legume, not a nut, doesn't have quite the same nutritional profile. It's often cut with inflammatory oils like palm oil, um, and it can have a mold, which is actually a potential carcinogen. So overall, I just try to steer people towards almond butter. It's definitely more expensive. There's a sticker shock for all of us, but it's somewhat of an affordable luxury because you buy one jar and it lasts you several months. So I think, you know, you know, for the price of two lattes, you're getting better quality nut butter for two months. Yeah. And then the other really impactful change is to be strategic about sleep and to make sure that we're actually setting ourselves up for sufficient quantity and quality of sleep. It's the best medicine. So I think there's like three most impactful changes we can make to promote better sleep. One is to actually go to bed earlier. You want to know when you're having your tired signs. When are you uh, yawning? When are you rubbing your eyes? That's when you want to swoop yourself into bed. 
And many of us routinely push past our tired signs. We are like, well, it's too early or um, I have more things to finish up. And then we get into a state called overtired where we're suddenly hit with a second wind and we get tired but wired. And then we toss and turn and we try to fall asleep. And that's because our body thinks we must have a good reason for staying up past the point of being tired. So it's trying to help. It secretes our stress hormone cortisol. And then it makes it much more difficult to fall asleep. Getting the phone out of the bedroom is very impactful. So just setting up your charger somewhere else in your home. And then you go to a phone-free bedroom. And that way we're not impacted by the blue spectrum light that our phone emits and the fact that our social media apps very intentionally never cue us to stop. And so mm -hmm. you know, no one has ever said, oh, look, I got to the end of TikTok. Let me go to bed at this wholesome hour. So we scroll endlessly and we doom scroll as well. And that makes it very hard to surrender and to sleep because we feel surrounded by danger. And the last thing for sleep is to have some kind of blue blocking glasses. And this is going to allow yourself to block all blue spectrum light from getting into your eyes which is really, really critical because light is the primary cue for our circadian rhythm. When it's light, we release our stress hormones, we feel awake and alert. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And then darkness is what allows us to secrete melatonin so that we can feel sleepy and go to sleep. Hey guys, just to interrupt for a second to ask you whether you're experiencing humidity or heat at the moment. If so, then this is interesting. My summer has been particularly hot and my skin really doesn't work well. I wake up puffy, it feels dry, and then it gets oily, and I experience many other symptoms you may relate to also. So this is why I'm excited to tell you about the UFO 2 smart masking device from Foreo, the world's leading skincare tech brand and my podcast partners. Truly get your dream skin in just two minutes with this supercharged at-home facial for an instantly nourished, natural, healthy glow from the very first use. You can travel with it. It is just brilliant. It offers professional results through the fusion of four technologies and full customization. The UFO 2 uses full spectrum LED light therapy to revitalize, diminish signs of aging and improve overall skin texture for beautifully smooth and soft skin. Top off the treatment with cooling cryotherapy to lock in moisture and visibly reduce puffiness. 
honestly, it's quite amazing and I genuinely couldn't recommend it more. I use it before parties, weddings, meetings, and it's like I've slept for about 20 hours. There is a huge discount for the month of July, so please do use it. Foreo have partnered with Current Body, the beauty device experts, to offer Not Perfect listeners an exclusive 20% off all Foreo products for the month of July. So to claim your discount, head to currentbody.com slash notperfect, and this will be in the show notes. And thanks again to Foreo. The UFO2 has changed my life this summer. Cryotherapy for the face is one of the most genius inventions. What are your thoughts then on psychedelics to address mental health? Because this is definitely controversial and I appreciate your opinion on this. Yeah, I think when it comes to psychedelics, all the caveats really do apply. And I I don't say those as a medical, legal, cautious sense. I say that really as a human concern for other people's well-being. There are people for whom it's dramatically beneficial and transformative and people for whom it's just not their friend. It's not the right thing for their brain. So if you have a proneness for psychosis or bipolar disorder, I take these contraindications very seriously. I think a chaotic brain, you don't want to introduce more chaos. I think Mm. a fixed or stuck or rigid brain, it's a really good thing to shake up the snow globe and let the snow fall in a different way. Mm. What I've observed in what the research tells us, part of why psychedelics are a very exciting and promising new avenue for addressing mental health, which couldn't come soon enough because our field is really in crisis of of not having sufficiently effective treatments for everyone. I think part of it is that they resemble our existing treatments. They're active on our serotonin receptors and the 5-HT2A receptors in particular. Um, They're anti-inflammatory, some of them. They promote BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So they promote neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, which translation of all of that is that we can grow and change and adapt. We get this window of time when we can really change our habits and our behaviors and our patterns after some a psychedelic medicine ceremony. The part about it, I mean, there's also the default mode network effect where for that brief moment while we're in ceremony, we have a dissolution of that narrow, limited understanding of ourself as separate mm-hmm. from others. We can feel more interconnected and more in the present moment, less future tripping, less dwelling on the past, less separate from others, more just instantaneously interconnected with everything. And I think that's medicine for what ails us as a modern society where we're so pitted against each other and hyperpolarized and carrying around so much resentment. I think that what's most exciting to me about psychedelics has nothing to do with all of these biochemical effects. And it's really, in the words of my friend and colleague, Will Sue, he says, Psychedelics are not just agents for healing trauma. They are tools for making spirituality palatable for our starving Western world. Mm. And for me, that's actually the real end game. And there's actually science to back this up. There's something called the mystical experience hypothesis, where the extent to which you have a mystical experience in a psychedelic ceremony is actually correlative with the effect size, with the benefit, and even whether or not it's an enduring effect. So basically, the more that you get an experience of awe and wonder, it's going to have a more potent antidepressant effect. So I think that's really interesting. We're not just tweaking your serotonin levels. We're completely shifting your perspective in a way that builds towards love and trust and surrender. A lot of people listening will probably 
there'll be some people who will be more hesitant because I think psychedelics have still got that stigma as being drugs out of control, like for hippies or whatever. And then others will be like, well, where do I go? Does the regulation of this field like worry you slightly? And where should we point people? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always good to just sort of peel back the curtain and recognize our associations with these medicines, sort of the moral panic and that emerged more in the 70s and 80s. There's, There's been a lot of messaging and spin put on how we think about it. All medicines, whether we're talking about psilocybin, like the active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms, mm-hmm. or we're talking about Lexapro, like our antidepressants, or we're talking about Tylenol, I think we just have to recognize they all can be beneficial and harmful. <laughs> it just yeah. sort of has to do with indication and contraindication. And in the case of psychedelics, very much has to do with set and setting. So I really am interested in people having an appropriate indication and setting for these medicines. And um, you know, drinking ayahuasca from a can at Coachella is probably not medicine. <laughs> it's not yes. fully beneficial and can be risky. But in a proper setting, the therapeutic setting where you have preparation, where you bring intention, where you're able to integrate the experience afterward, all in a supportive setting, it's such powerful medicine. So for anyone who's wondering, like, where do they go? It, it just depends. For many people, you'd want to start above board and to do the legal option, which currently, at least in the U.S., is ketamine. Um, and mm-hmm. so now there are many ketamine clinics. They're set up generally to treat treatment-resistant depression and suicidality. And then for some people, there's the possibility of going to a place in the world where certain psychedelics are legal. So there are places in South America, like Brazil and Peru, and I believe also Costa Rica, where you can work with medicines like ayahuasca. Um, There are places in the world where psilocybin is legal, like Jamaica and the Netherlands. And then, of course, it's up to you, but there are underground practitioners doing this work, some of them, everyone really that I've encountered, doing it so judiciously um, Mm. and really, you know, putting their license uh, at risk because they believe so deeply that this is necessary to help their patients. Inflammation is something that you refer to a lot. Why is this so critical for us to understand when we are addressing mental health and how to improve our health and happiness. Yeah. So we've all come of age with that monoamine hypothesis of depression, saying our depression is related to our serotonin and the other monoamine neurotransmitters. That has some validity, but it's not the whole story. And there are competing hypotheses. There are a lot of different potential causes of depression and anxiety. One competing hypothesis is called the cytokine or inflammatory hypothesis of depression. And it basically recognizes that if we are on the proverbial savanna of evolution and we drink the wrong pond water and we get a microbe that does not belong in our body, we're going to be acutely inflamed. And the adaptive response is to want to socially isolate, to retreat to our cave, rest in the dark until our immune system can get a foothold on the infection. Those symptoms line up pretty closely with what we call depression. And these days in modern life, COVID-19 aside, for the most part, we are not inflamed because we got a microbe. We are inflamed because of all of these exposures of modern life, processed inflammatory foods, pollution, even the decimation of our gut flora is in effect an inflammatory signal to our body. And so we're going through life in a chronic low-grade state of inflammation And it's showing up, I believe, as a chronic low-grade state of depression for many of us. And I feel like this is actually a hopeful piece of news because it's easier than seven years of psychotherapy to just say, okay, let's address the inflammation. Let's decrease some of the inputs. 
which can be for some people gluten or dairy, or for many of us, these industrially processed seed and vegetable oils, things like canola oil, soybean oil. And then aside from decreasing our inputs towards inflammation, there's a lot that we can do to calibrate our immune system. And I think that's the right language to be thinking about it. Our immune system, it's this powerful machinery and it needs calibration. And these days, all of our immune systems are so haywire and they're overreacting to benign stimuli, which is what we call allergies. And they're attacking our own self tissue in the case of autoimmune disease. And sometimes even underperforming in the face of a formidable pathogen, such as with COVID-19. So what we really want to do is calibrate it. And that has to do with having healthy vitamin D levels, which opens up a controversial conversation about sun exposure. And then um, we do want to give it the right information and basic training. And we achieve that by having a diverse ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, parasites, viruses in our gut. So consuming fermented foods and starchy tubers is a really critical step to making sure that we have that diverse ecosystem to calibrate our immune system and teach it the difference between friend and foe. Let's talk about the controversial sun exposure that you address in your book. Vitamin D levels started to become a slightly more uh, popular conversation during the pandemic. And before then, I hardly ever saw anyone discussing our chronic vitamin D deficiency. How has this shown up in your work and why are you passionate about helping people rethink the sun? Calling vitamin D vitamin D is almost a misnomer. It should be called a hormone. It pertains to our bone health, our immune health, our mental health, mm. so many different aspects of our well-being. And we're all walking around, for the most part, deficient in it because we're living out of sync with how we evolved. We evolved outdoors, so we were getting a lot more sun exposure. The complexity here is that we're all so different, and it's once again a case where we're just not acknowledging the bio-individuality. For somebody mm. with less melanated skin, yes, of course, there can be risk to sun exposure. It certainly comes at the cost of a risk of skin cancer. To someone with more melanated skin, my feeling is that we're actually doing a disservice to someone with more melanated skin by saying, fear the sun, because they are dramatically more at risk of all of the long-term or all of the negative consequences of vitamin D deficiency and much less at risk of skin cancer related to sun exposure. So I think we just need to recognize we're different. And I think there's one other little tricky nuance here, which is that say you have more fair skin when we avoid the sun and religiously apply sunblock, we stay very fair, very light skin. And then those few times when we are at a parade in June and we forgot our sunblock or we go on a vacation somewhere tropical, then we're getting burned. And sunburn is really where the risk lies when it comes to skin cancer risk. Aging, premature aging has to do with tanning, but that's vanity. That's not life or death. Skin cancer risk has to do with burning. And I think by avoiding the sun, but then inevitably occasionally getting a sunburn because our skin is so pale, we're actually in certain ways putting ourselves even at higher risk. So I think perhaps we can strike this balance, a happy medium, where we get chronic low-grade consistent sun exposure, not getting a sunburn, but just keeping a bit of a base coat so that we're not so vulnerable to a burn on those inevitable days in June at the parade. And many people will say, well, why don't I just take this in supplement form? 
And it turns out, like, we have a lot of research to kind of show that vitamin D deficiency is associated with all kinds of bad outcomes, but supplementing with vitamin D doesn't seem to fix the problem. Mm. And all of this, I think, is, is part of why it's so healthy to have some amount of sun exposure. To touch upon the supplement conversation, is there any supplements you do actually recommend people, especially, you know, when addressing anxiety? There are several supplements that do stand to give us benefit, but I always want to balance that with the fact that if you have a kitchen counter full of supplement bottles and you spend time standing there in the morning choking back pills, like this this does something to us that is almost a little counterproductive. And I think it can make us feel sick. It can make us feel like a patient. It, it takes us out of just living our fulfilling lives and feeling well. So I always balance these two considerations. But I find that at the very least, and especially for anybody struggling with anxiety, I do think there's a role for magnesium glycinate. Oh, um, <laughs> obsessed. <laughs> it is pretty life-changing. And, and here's the thing is that it's we're, we're all deficient in magnesium because our food is deficient, because our soil is deficient. So if you are living in the shadow of an active volcano in Sicily and eating tomatoes grown in that mineral-rich soil, you're cool. But for the rest of us, we should be supplementing mm -hmm. with magnesium. And it helps with anxiety, but also insomnia and migraine headaches and menstrual cramps and muscle tension and digestion and cardiovascular health and longevity. So it's like a good thing to do and it's safe and it's inexpensive. We just need to do it. So I have a bottle of magnesium glycinate. I'll take one or two pills at bedtime. Most nights, sometimes I skip it or forget. And sometimes I take an Epsom salt bath instead, which is a nice way to absorb magnesium through the skin. And it's relaxing in its own right. And then depending on the person, I might have one person, you know, take cod liver oil as a good source of omega-3s and of vitamins A, D, E, and K. And, and I don't mean to say we shouldn't occasionally supplement with vitamin D. I just mean to say it doesn't fully take the place of what other benefits we get from the sun. So I take cod liver oil through the winter when it's just not possible to get my vitamin D from the sun. And I do have patients who I'll, I'll recommend things like a multivitamin, with, in particular where they provide methylated B vitamins, which can be supportive of mental health. So at the beginning of the interview, you touched upon psycho-spirituality. And as you noted, this isn't often the most common conversation for a psychiatrist to be having, because to your point, it immediately gets put in this woo-woo box that has a lot of fear around opening it. So how does spirituality, in your view, play out when it comes to mental health management? And what is spirituality in your eyes, as it is obviously very different from religion? I mean, certainly this never, ever came up in my psychiatric training. <laughs> and we're squeamish about this. And psychiatry as a field is constantly just trying to ground itself in science and legitimize itself and be taken seriously in that way. So certainly we're not the ones that are going to be like, so God. <laughs> and I think that what I realized over the years is that I was doing my patients a disservice avoiding this topic. And I'm certainly not here to proselytize. I don't have a horse in this race. I'll be the first to say, I don't know <laughs> what's true or what's real. Yeah. But I just want to give people permission to seek and to explore and find what feels true for them. You know, some people grew up with organized religion and they almost are on their rebellious swing of the pendulum, like they're conmarrying the, all of the, that learning and those limitations and what didn't resonate for them about organized religion. I'm someone who grew up in the suburbs of New York City in the 80s and 90s, and it was cool to be atheist. Um, it was cool, like skepticism was a yeah. virtue, and um, we worshiped at the altar of scientism, really. 
So for me, it was actually almost the rebellion was to connect to spirituality, which I didn't do until my 30s. And I think it's such a potent salve for anxiety because anxiety, it centers around themes of certainty and control and, you know, fear of the worst case scenario. And in many ways, you know, there is an inherent vulnerability, which is being a human. You know, we can suffer. We can lose the people we love. We will eventually die. That's all, you know, legitimately anxiety provoking. But I think that when we have no connection to sense of meaning or feeling any guidance or anything that we can trust, it just feels like it's all riding on us. And then why wouldn't we be hypervigilant and get every medical test and, um, you know, avoid, make our lives smaller and take fewer risks because, you know, we're trying to avoid the so-called worst case scenario, trying to prevent that. You know, for me, what really challenged my worldview was when I lost my mom, it felt too cold and lonely and senseless to just think that she ceased to exist entirely. I really wanted a version of understanding this existence that made space for some transcendence, for some continual existence of the spirit or the soul beyond this material world. I don't know if it's true, but I've chosen that worldview and it gives me immense comfort and it allows me to continue to feel connected to my mom. And I've noticed that for my patients, it's when things are really hard in their lives that it can feel so supportive to wonder if, and just play around with the edge of maybe loss is not quite so absolute and maybe something vastly beyond our comprehension is occurring here. And that can actually take some of the pressure off. Where did you go? Because I think for many people that there probably is a desire because, you know, from the history of mankind, we have had far more psycho-spiritual rituals than we have had now. We've kind of gone through a really odd stage in the last 50 years of denying ourselves these, you know, these things our ancestors did without really thinking about it just because it felt good. Where does one start in their quest to reconnect with a deeper, more truer nature, perhaps, of themselves? It's interesting because, I mean, I didn't grow up with organized religion imposed upon me, so I don't have what I've witnessed. Many people have plenty of negative associations with that. You know, certainly there are people with positive associations, but some people had a negative experience. But in conmarrying organized religion as a culture, as a society in these modern days, we have also discarded and sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We've discarded a very big player on that landscape of how do we gather in community and have a system for making meaning um, and have a, a sort of formula for how to seek and ask the bigger questions. So I think we have to rebuild it for ourselves. I think about like family culture. If you were raised mm -hmm. in a family, there, there are some things you want to carry forward from your family culture, some things you want to discard <laughs> immediately and, and often new rituals that you want to cultivate. And so I think just giving people that assignment, like let's intentionally create new rituals and build that culture of seeking and gathering in the company of others to be in a state of questioning and awe and to build it into our lives in whatever way feels true for us. But I think most of all, we just need to recognize humans need ritual. We need it for the passage of time. We need it for rites of passage. We need it um, to grieve. We need ritual and it's been just obliterated in modern life. And, you know, and I think that's one of many factors contributing to such a crisis of mental health issues. Are there some rituals that you have introduced into your life that 
provides so much comfort and reassurance and joy that perhaps you didn't have in the first half of your life. Oh, so many. Um, I'm lucky that my partner, I think, is very oriented around ritual as well. And he's shown me a lot of good ones. I think about like a birthday or a wedding or any celebration. We go around in a circle and and share about like, yeah. what do we cherish about this person? I think about we, we have a very regular practice of kind of gathering with close friends, whether it's around intentionally listening to music or asking each other questions, kind of like connecting in a deep way. Um, we have rituals around psychedelic ceremonies. And I think grief in particular, I don't know if I would call it a ritual, but I had to figure out how to grieve more effectively. Mm-hmm. And I think the main ritual is crying. Yeah. <laughs> they call it a ritual. But basically, I had to learn how to cry better. And I think for the first half of my life, I was crying the way we all cry, where you you say you're sorry, you feel like a burden to the people around you, and you try to suck it back in and make it as small as possible. And I had to learn how to not apologize, but just, I hate that this rhymes, but normalize it and yeah. and be in an attitude of, of acceptance or even sort of inviting tears in and then letting it be as big as possible, letting it be really complete and that's been very good medicine for me and a really critical part of my moving through grief. Very well put. And so much food for thought. My brain is just bubbling with so many reflections from what you've just said. Dr. Ellen, where is the best place for people to find you? Uh, the Anatomy of Anxiety, your book, is absolutely brilliant. And so I will put that book in the show notes. But are you doing any talks? Are you doing anything for people to learn more? Like, I would love to hear that. Yeah, I think the best place to kind of connect with what I'm putting out there in the conversation is on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Vora MD. And then my book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, is a distillation of everything I've observed for the last 15 years or so into, I don't know, about 250 pages. I, I hope that for whoever resonates with this message and could use a little support with anxiety, with mental health in general, I hope the book can be helpful. And yeah, it's a delight to be here with you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.